All right. Welcome to A New Human Story. In this series, I'm speaking with young changemakers who are creating a better world for people and planet. Today, I'm super excited to be speaking with Elliot Connor, who is the 18-year-old CEO of Human Nature Projects, which is on a mission to help make us all better animals. He now directs a network of volunteers across 105 countries who are reframing our human relationship with nature inspiring gratitude and respect for the animals we share this planet with. That's just incredible work, Elliot. Welcome. Thank you, Sonia. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. I'm sure it'll be fascinating. (laughs) So you're calling in from Sydney. Yes, that's right. Um, Generally in Sydney or thereabouts. I came originally from the UK and always enjoy traveling. But with COVID, uh, I've been stuck here uh, for the past year. Uh, but still traveling locally and seeing the sights and getting out into nature when I can, which is really beautiful. Uh, I spent about a month in Sydney a few years ago and I loved it. I mean, it's beautiful. I'm in Toronto, Canada right now. (laughs) We're about a couple feet of snow under us. So, you know, I definitely do miss the nice (laughs) sandy beaches of Sydney. But so I wanted just to say that I was looking at some of your experiences and just before we dive in, like, wow, I mean, just some of these things you've been up to recently are just so incredible. Giving flying lessons to owls, playing chicken with vultures being stalked by leopards in Botswana. You know, I think these kinds of experiences really show that you have this unique bond with our natural relatives that only comes from having a really deep appreciation and awe for our natural world. And so I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about what inspired you to go down this journey to become an explorer of our natural world. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's a long story in itself, Uh, I guess. (laughs) There's a combination of factors uh, that sort of led me down this path. Uh, originally, uh, coming from a family of amateur bird watchers, and uh, I think the UK culture as well uh, itself played a big role in that uh, because you get the long walks in the countryside, you get these big bird watching fairs, you get nature appreciation as a much larger part of that British culture, that personality uh, of those wintry aisles. So that was something which I carried over here to Australia with me, uh, definitely. And uh, especially in in my younger days, uh, going on holidays to see nature, going on safari uh, when I was lucky, and going abroad uh, to appreciate nature. Uh, that definitely sparked a passion and interest for me. Uh, when I started collecting uh, insects, feathers, uh, rocks and minerals, all that jazz, shells even. I was able to learn more about the nature around me. So uh, that really opened up a few doors for me. I started volunteering with a local museum, the Australian Museum, which is a huge institution, uh, brilliant staff, brilliant collections. And that taught me a lot. But then I guess... I merged into that role of a citizen scientist. Uh, So I started using iNaturalist, uh, which is uh, this platform for recording observations of wildlife in one surrounds. I set up the Sydney Naturalist Group, which was just people like myself from all walks of life, all ages, all backgrounds, uh, coming together once a month and whenever else they were available uh, to get out into nature, to record what they saw. 
And I think I, ju I just checked yesterday, there's about 2,200 species that have been logged. Uh, it's about 15,000 observations. So there's some pretty impressive numbers that are built up uh, just from that group, uh, really simply oh. over these past three years. And yeah, as I grew more involved in those spaces, I started doing more wildlife photography and filmmaking. Uh, and that led me to, I guess, a bit more of what I'm doing now, uh, which is science communication and then stepping out onto that global stage with Human Nature Projects, my charity, uh, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. You know, observations, I think people really underestimate the value of that. And, you know, I work with Indigenous nations a lot, and a lot of them at their core really believe in, you know, observing, appreciating, and then acting accordingly, right? And we can't mm even determine how we should be acting and how we should be relating and engaging unless we can really observe and understand and appreciate how nature acts and interacts and changes all the time. And I think it's a really important thing for us to be able to get out in nature and start to just open our eyes and look and observe and pay attention to what's happening all around us. It's such a great teacher. So one thing I'm curious about from you is we've often as a society shut ourselves off from nature and that relationship to some degree whether it's uh, because of lack of understanding or because of a fear. And so how do you break through that fear? How do you begin to have the courage to get out there again and start to rebuild that relationship and have that curiosity to get out there on the land and look and build these beautiful relationships again? Yeah, well, I think it comes down to, again, a few aspects, some of which we've already touched on. Uh, so the citizen science, what I was talking about, uh, with Sydney naturalists and just getting out there doing it, uh, starting uh, on that journey. Uh, you mentioned observations uh, being a great way to learn and a great way to become more confident in those surroundings. Because mm -hmm. if you know uh, where you are, what you're doing, uh, what all of these animals are around you, uh, then suddenly you have that confidence uh, to be able to explore and uh, share that passion uh, then with others. Uh, for me as well. I guess lately what I've taken up animal rescuing uh, so that's a place where I get to see both the best and the worst uh, of our relationship with nature uh, because you have animals which have been injured uh, due to human actions you get uh, owls that have been hit by cars you get turtles that have been smashed into by boats or by kayaks you get all manner of uh, things uh, coming through those doors and you also get the incredible members of the public who are calling in, reporting them, uh, sometimes staying with them for days or, uh, well, had cases where they're staying overnight, uh, just watching this animal, making sure it's okay. And they go to such incredible lengths uh, to make sure that these creatures' welfare is taken seriously, is uh, protected, conserved. So that's the case where uh, I've really come to respect uh, the the complexity of our human relationship with nature because you're right uh, there are many many people who fear it fail to understand it uh, fail to appreciate it but uh, when people are given those opportunities to interact with it uh, to come to learn more about it uh, to come to respect it uh, then that's when uh, we do get real change happening uh, through mm -hmm that animal rescuing, I've been really privileged uh, to see that. 
That's beautiful. I think nature can really teach us a lot as well. I mean, just through that story of, you know, teaching to have compassion and to bring love into a new way of uh, interacting with these species. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful way to, to relearn that relationship. Definitely. You talk a little bit. Yeah, you talk about redefining conservation that's more than just protecting, but being more coexisting and engaging. And can you talk a little bit about how you see this relationship with nature and how conservation can, you know, what conservation should look like going forward into the future? Yeah, so I think at the most fundamental level, the principle I live by, which I use, is what I call humanas. So this is the idea that when we're interacting with nature, when we're interacting with other animals, you should be trying to do so treating that animal as if it were a fellow human being, as if it were another person. So for example, a few days ago, I was rescuing a pied cormorant just uh, locally. So this had been called in by a member of the public. Uh, It had a fishing hook on the corner of his eye and uh, through one of its webbed feet. Uh, so it was a pretty nasty case, honestly. <laughs> I went down there, it was obviously by the beach, by the seaside, uh, and it was the most challenging rescue I've done by quite a way, because even though it was in dire straits, this bird, clearly it's swimming and its eyesight weren't impedimented in any way. So <laughs> I ended up swimming out there in the full clothes and uh, trying to outmaneuver that bird in the water and eventually uh, managed to catch it which was fortunate so that was uh, great um, <laughs> I was half drowned in doing so uh, trying to keep this bird above the water and safe uh, not holding it down under where my ground and it managed to bite me a few times in the face and on the hands it was quite chaotic and that really brought home this message because, yeah, I did get some serious red gashes from that. But subsequently, when I was handling that bird, when I hadn't just grabbed it out of the water, when it wasn't screaming its head off, uh, then it was quite happy for me to handle it. And I mean, there are birds which are generally very stressed and they won't allow you to do that. But in this case, I was developing this almost a partnership with the bird because mm. when it was calm, when it was being treated respectfully, when it wasn't wasn't stressed in any way, then I was able to handle it, take it inside, outside the aviary, eventually release it. So in that case, it really comes down to understanding uh, that animal, appreciating that he does have these feelings, uh, it is conscious, it is a thinking, living organism. So that's something we don't always give enough attention to and I know in New Zealand last year uh, they passed a law they put in their constitution that animals are sentient living beings Uh, in Switzerland uh, their uh, law says that all animals have to be treated with dignity which is a wonderful notion so I think it comes down to that uh, very much. I think that's an amazing story because it demonstrates that really nature brings out and challenges us to bring out the best in ourselves, right? Because, you know, that bird was 
only going to allow you to handle it. Once they could feel you were coming in peace and in respect and in honor and appreciation. And they can feel, they communicate through feeling. And I know we have horses on our farm here. And, you know, if I'm having a bad day or if I'm in a bad mood or bringing bad energy out to see them, you know, they will have none of it. You know, they snub me, they turn their backs to me and and they wander off, you know, they say, come back when you're feeling better and you're bringing a better attitude to us, you know. And I think that animals really can sense the intention and the feeling that we have coming to them. And I know from my experience, it really challenges me to always bring my best self to that relationship and to those interactions, which I think is a beautiful lesson that they can teach us. So I love that. It comes down and, a lot to the body language. So yes. we talk about language in people and that uh, human yes. beings are unique amongst animals and having this complex language, but what we uh, neglect is the fact that most animals have an even more complicated uh, language just in their posture, just in their line of sight, in all these complex factors and their gestures even that allow them to communicate with other species uh, far more than we can as humans. It's something we're very often not conscious of. Uh, so uh, that's one of the very first things you learn uh, when working with animals uh, that you have to be have that heightened awareness of what's going on around you what these animals are feeling through that body language they're showing so is it possible do you think for for us to relearn then the language of nature i mean it clearly you've relearned it or you're relearning it right how to speak the language of nature so to say it's, it's an interesting question and a difficult one to answer because I mean, when you say the language of nature, uh, there are thousands and thousands of different ways that could be interpreted. Uh, we've got anywhere between 8 million and 1 trillion species on this planet. So that's a huge range in itself. But all of those animals have a unique way of communicating. They may be able to understand each other more than we can as humans. But if you think that here in Australia, we had, what is it, 5,000 Aboriginal languages, a huge number uh, prior to colonization. And we still have managed to lose so many of them. We still fail to understand how to translate the vast majority of them. <laughs> if you're trying to translate one trillion animal languages, uh, that would be a huge feat in itself. But yes, uh, there's definitely progress being made towards that. Uh, so we're starting to be able to uh, communicate with dolphins. Uh, they've made mm -hmm. a machine called uh, Chat, C-H-A-T, which is essentially an inbuilt dictionary for dolphins. Uh, so it allows the humans to record the dolphin sounds uh, which they make uh, and which they've equated to a human word and then to be able to play those back. Uh, so it's this inbuilt translator. It looks a bit like a toaster, uh, swimmers strapped mm -hmm. to their chest. So that's a very, very rudimentary attempt to be able to broker that language gap. But now we've got people using AIs to map animal languages, animal sounds in hundreds of dimensions, incredibly complicated work to be able to create a more profound understanding to fill out this dictionary uh, instead of just doing your ABCs. So who knows where it will go. Yeah, I always feel like at the core, though, there is, you know, obviously not the complexity of all languages. But when you are, like you said, in a very intimate experience with another animal, another being, there is an unspoken understanding that can be 
garnered between you and that other being that comes from the heart center of really just them picking up on your intention and your caring, compassion, respect, uh, appreciation, and responding accordingly, right? And it's the same, it's that connection that I think can begin to unlock some of that um, deeper understanding and language that we may be able to communicate with, even if it's just an unspoken bond that we begin to create, right? Mm, Definitely. Yeah. So when you talk about making a difference and defining how we start to make a difference deliberately with the choices that we make and the actions we make, can you talk a little bit about how people can begin to make a difference? I know many people, especially young people, are very overwhelmed by all the different, just the magnitude of challenges that face us in rebuilding this relationship with our natural world, which is absolutely essential in the next years to come. And so how can people be reminded that they can make a difference and that what does that mean to you? Well, ultimately, it's the simplest things that count. So I'm very privileged to speak with incredible young leaders in up to a dozen countries in a day. So uh, that's an experience which I find deeply inspiring, empowering uh, personally. But all of these leaders, all of these people are simply uh, those who've taken it upon themselves to act in a way that aligns with their values. Uh, so for me, uh, when I was starting out human nature projects, uh, that came very much from a set of beliefs. I was in France at the time, uh, caring for injured raptors and hedgehogs. And I spent many, many long winter nights over there, uh, locked away in a very remote castle. And so I was researching the operations of hundreds of NGOs in this space, uh, trying to work out how I could get involved because I knew environmentalism was what I was interested in, what I was passionate about. And I didn't find those opportunities were available as much as I would like, especially as a youth with limited experience, limited skills to share. So there are obstacles, definitely, nobody doubts that. But there are also communities, there are also networks, there are also platforms that can support you, set you up to make a difference. So you definitely don't have to walk that path alone. I created Human Nature Projects to be that space for me, to allow me to walk that journey with thousands of others and uh, it's really helped me and hopefully many others uh, to take those steps but ultimately uh, it is really a case of finding what you're passionate about what you believe in uh, and then trying to find a way of expressing that if you can tell your story then that gives you so so much more power to be able to influence others and to be able to influence your own life as well it opens up new doors So that would be the starting point, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I love what you were saying, I think, in one of your videos about how we may not have control over everything in our world, but we do have control of our own actions and our minds and how Mm. we choose to take deliberate steps every day, right? And I think that's a really profound statement to make because I think we forget and we think we have to take on, you know, all the problems of the world. But what we do have control over is how we choose to act every day, how we choose to relate to the birds and to the squirrels and to the animals that we pass by and how we choose to deliberately interact with our natural environment in a conscious way. And and these are things that we can actively make a difference about every day, right? Yeah, yeah. And it starts with learning. 
It's as simple as that. So if you can take a bus ride, take your commute into work and learn a new bird call, learn a new bird species, get an online field guide, do a Google image search, birds in Sydney, whatever it might be. It's not difficult to start on that journey. So amazing. that's all I'd say. I love that. I love that. Learning a new bird call. That's an amazing start. I have to say, I mean, I live um, outside of a major city of Toronto, but I did recently have my first experience with learning the different bird calls of the handful of birds that were in our city. And it was fascinating. And it's uh, it was an eye-opening experience, I, I have to say. So I encourage everyone to go and figure out what the birds are in their local area and what their different bird calls are. It's very cool. It's very cool. So you talk about this word called ikigai. Ikigai, am I pronouncing it right? Yep, ikigai. So what is that? And how can people find their passions and purpose? You know, like some people just don't know how to even begin down that road. So what is that word and how does that relate to people finding their purpose? Well, the ikigai is a Japanese concept originally. It's about finding this intersection of what you're skilled at um, where your strength might lie, what you are passionate about, so where you can make a difference, and ultimately what you can do for a living. Uh, mm. So if you can find the intersection of those three petals, then that's where you'll find a really great purpose, a really great direction in life. Uh, so uh, for me, uh, I'm really passionate about nature, about conservation. I'm skilled at community building and at uh, communicating, so uh, storytelling, essentially, and uh, where I can earn, uh, earn a keep, and uh, where I can continue uh, working is in that intersection between conservation and filmmaking, trying to create impact uh, through telling these stories, through inspiring others, and ultimately through uh, creating networks and platforms where other people can share uh, these ideas and values. So. Uh, that's how human nature projects arose. Uh, that's what I'm doing with my podcast, with my book, with all of these different documentaries uh, I'm working on. So that's the idea behind a lot of what I'm doing. But trying to find that ikigai is very, very valuable for anyone for any stage of their life. Right. So how can people find their ikigai and, and, you know, how can our education system help us foster that? Are there things people can do to whether they're getting out of the land or, you know, or how can we start to foster people, young people to be able to, to seek out and find their ikigai? Yeah, it's a difficult question. Uh, for some people, it comes quite naturally and for some it may never come at all. Uh, it's definitely uh, varies a lot uh, between different people. As for me, I found the, the best way, the easiest way, uh, was in finding people who inspired me. Uh, so I've been very privileged in my journey to have many, many mentors uh, who've guided me. Uh, the first of them was an Australian photographer and publisher called Steve Parrish. Uh, he invited me up to his studio in Northern Australia, in Queensland, been three years ago now. Uh, so I spent two days with him acting as his aide, as his runner on the workshop he was doing. And I found that really, really powerful as an experience. The way he talks about it is as a creative life purpose. So he's all about using visual media. But the creative life purpose is the vision behind these stories you're telling, these photographs you're taking, these videos you're making. Whatever that might be, it always needs that defining vision to 
bring it all together. It can't just be disconnected. You can't just be working various random jobs um, as opportunity dictates. Uh, there needs to be some overarching goal to what you're doing. And that's how we talked about it. And so that was about my very first experience. But since I've been able to work with some incredible, incredible people. Uh, so that would be probably the first step I'd recommend for anyone to take. If you work out who inspires you, who you'd like to emulate, then that will allow you to take those best parts, those parts you inspire from, uh, that inspire you of them and uh, run with them, make them your own and ultimately uh, your own character, your own, your own inspiration uh, will bleed through. Uh, so that's probably uh, the steps I'd follow. Amazing. All right. So tell us about your book. Did you just get it out there? Do you have it with you? Yeah, I've got one here. I've got two dozen on my floor, uh, but that's what it looks like. First print line come through yesterday. Yeah, been a lovely experience for me. I wrote it uh, during the lockdown here in Sydney. So um, I was homeschooling at the time. And it's, it was uh, an interesting experience because it allowed me to, I guess, consolidate a lot of the tidbits and learnings I picked up over the past few years. It's an expression of my journey thus far and uh, some of these thoughts I've had. So it was really, really interesting to write. Uh, I spent a few months in that period uh, working nonstop and writing it and then editing it over these summer holidays uh, so it's just come out and yeah really exciting as a new stage in my life yeah what are some of the key highlights of the book what are you trying to share with people through the book yeah so the book charts are human relationship with nature and the way that's changed uh, from the past mm. to the present and especially to the future because there's so much we can that predict forecast uh, for what's to come, uh, especially with this accelerating rate of change, uh, both environmental issues and in research, uh, in our understanding of other animals. Uh, so with both of those almost on this collision course, uh, I think uh, within my lifetime, uh, we're going to see some very, very dramatic changes uh, to come. Uh, so yeah, it's about helping people to appreciate, to understand nature, to see how incredibly wonderful and diverse it is, uh, and then to inspire them to preserve it and to reimagine how uh, that conservation might work. Uh, because companies have not done very well. <laughs> I think most people can be agreed on that. Uh, so looking at how that might change as well uh, into the yeah. future. So are you hopeful then that we can do it, you know, that we can learn and rebuild this relationship with nature? Definitely. Yeah, I think the youth today are very much sensitized to the issues we're faced with. And the science is pretty darn close to being there in terms of solving these issues. So if we can get the awareness and the action coming together, then those are the two elements we need to really solve these issues. And of course, there's this doomsday clock. There are these very strict deadlines we're going to have to meet to do so. I'd say we need to protect a good chunk of our planet, maybe 50% of it uh, by 2050. But if we can do things like that, if we can start bringing this action, this policy up to speed, then uh, we definitely have a fighting chance of 
protecting nature, protecting what we care about. And I think with COVID as well, it's been a great chance to reflect for all of us, chart a new direction moving forward, uh, because COVID is a zoonotic disease. It arose uh, from us abusing, mistreating nature from the wet markets in China, from bats chiefly, and then via pangolins, I believe, to humans. So if we had embraced humanas, if we had embraced human nature philosophy, uh, then it would have come about. And if we keep that in mind, moving forward, how closely connected we are with nature, uh, then I think we can definitely avoid uh, future pandemics and ecological collapse. Yeah, I love that. And I love how you include humans in that story, because oftentimes we view nature as very separate from ourselves and we forget the fact that we are part of that story and we rely on nature and nature relies on us. And it is an interdependent and interconnected relationship. And there is no separation. We are part of nature, you know, and we depend on nature and we are part of that ecosystem. And so how nature goes, so goes humans. And so I think we have to remember that we're actually all working together with nature. And I love that you that you said that it's about building building a relationship, working with nature together in being able to find a way forward. So, Well, a big part of what I talk about in my book is redefining human beings, homo sapiens, and looking at our place within nature. And I arrive at the conclusion that humans are opportunistic ecosystem engineers. We're thrifty troublemakers. It's a simplistic way to put it. Uh, We are very, very good at making the most of new habitats, new food sources and new ways of living. For example, in the animal world, we'd be like a rat. Uh, Brown rats uh, can be found all over the world, except for Alaska, I believe, uh, where they've got border patrol, uh, fenced off, 24-7 guard, uh, just to keep these rats out. So we're like brown rats and we're uh, ecosystem engineers, which means that we shape uh, the habitats, uh, the spaces around us to suit our own needs. That's what cities are. Cities are humans' shoddy attempts at making ecosystems. And if we're able to reshape the way we're changing uh, the spaces around us, uh, the way we're working with or against nature uh, in such a way that we're designing human ecosystems and and natural spaces and our farms and roads and everywhere uh, that humans live, as spaces where animals can thrive, uh, then that means effectively the entire earth is a space for animals and and humans to thrive together. So that's a really important learning. In the animal world, it would be like a beaver. So beavers are the textbook example of ecosystem engineers. They build dams, make the rivers, which change the water course, uh, creating new niches where other animals can move in, can thrive. And you have the classic story of the wolves in Yellowstone, when they moved in, uh, then there were 10 times more beavers, I think, within a decade. Uh, So uh, that famously changed uh, the course of the rivers and it allowed this flourishing new ecosystem uh, to spring back. Uh, So really powerful lessons, I think we can learn just from those two traits and how we use them in interacting with nature. Yeah, so much we can learn. And I mean, I know I've, I've um, 
recently started studying biomimicry and just even the designs and ideas that we can learn from nature mm. on how we construct our societies moving forward. And a lot of that even, I mean, a tree is still the best water filtration system on the planet, <laughs> you know, so as much as we think our engineers have got to figure it out, right? Nature still does it better. And so, you know, if we can learn from how nature does things, I think we can build more sustainable societies that actually work in harmony with our natural world. So I agree there's a lot of hope, but it is humans changing our mindset. Absolutely. <laughs> Begins with us. <laughs> so <laughs> with that, Elliot, do you want, I know you've touched on this a lot, but can you capture maybe your vision for what you see, you know, the new human story being, you know, in the next, let's say we're able to create this shift. What does that look like? What does our new relationship with our natural world look like down the road once we have it figured out to some degree? Yeah, well, I think if I, if I could answer that question completely, uh, then much of my work would be finished, done. I think a large part of where we're headed is trying to simply define how we can live uh, in a peaceful, harmonious relationship with nature. These are words that are bandied around constantly, but they hold very little real world value in terms of uh, actionable goals in terms of what we can do so you mentioned biomimicry learning from nature that's great we can start redesigning our cities our human uh, commodities and processes uh, to be able to use nature's design principles but does that mean that animals can live in human cities more too not necessarily so it's all about how we go about uh, this reshaping of our lives it's all about uh, the journey as much as the end point. Uh, so uh, there's a new science uh, concept that I've come across recently, which is fascinating. It's called arbor or pleaching. So that's about reshaping trees and plants uh, into these very intricate design sculptures. You can make them look like a chair. So beautiful living sculptures. You can make them into the shape of a chessboard or uh, there are Indian peoples who've been shaping uh, living fig trees into bridges, uh, so spanning across the water for uh, thousands and thousands of years. If we can start learning how to work with nature in ways like that, then that's definitely what I'd like to be seeing more of uh, within my lifetime. And secondly, if we can start seeing and uh, interacting with other animals as though they were living sentient beings, as though they were people. And so those are the two key things, working with nature and seeing nature as our equal, which I hope can be achieved in my lifetime and certainly continues thereafter. I love it. It's beautiful. I'm getting goosebumps. That's uh, <laughs> so that's a beautiful vision. And I agree. I think we need to start uh, treating our relatives, our animal beings as our relatives and as nations unto themselves, you know, tree nations and bird societies and in root people and all these things that the indigenous always refer to them, you know, these wisdoms have been there for so long, and yet we've ignored them. And I think there's now a time where we're seeing the coming together of these ancient wisdoms and understandings, together with, you know, science that is now or Western science that is now backing up some of these understandings in a way that can really come together to bridge a way forward. So I'm really hopeful for what's to come. And I think people like you are really going to be paving the way for all of us. So I'm, I'm really grateful for all this work you're doing, Elliot. 
So I want to just end off by asking you your favorite story about being out in nature where you truly felt the awesomeness of our beautiful planet and our natural worlds. I know you have so many. I know there's so many to choose from, but just one, because it would be so great to just inspire young people with some of your amazing experiences out in nature. Yeah. Well, I think one of the more recent ones happened to me almost a year ago now, or just over. So I was doing probably my first filmmaking assignment. I've been invited to uh, South Africa, uh, the northeast of the country. Uh, it's called the Kruger National Park, a huge game reserve, uh, which is larger than Wales. Great expanse of natural area. And I arrived uh, in the camp, in the base, uh, and it was Christmas Eve. Uh, so it was lovely spirit in the camp and all the staff had decided to go out for a nighttime game drive for safari just to celebrate uh, this festive season uh, so i was uh, plonked on the tracker seat which is uh, like a padded seat uh, welded to the bonnet of the car uh, so right on the front no seatbelt no nothing it's a very ancient world war ii jeep and I was there with my flashlight bumping along on these uh, very uh, beaten tracks. And I managed to find a lioness in the beam of this light. Uh, so she was walking through uh, the long yellow grass, uh, stalking through the savannah. And these are very experienced um, field guides I was with. Uh, they had decades of experience doing what they do. Uh, so they were aware that there was a herd of impala uh, about 200 meters on. We drove up by this herd, switched off all the lights, switched off the spotlight, the headlights, switched off the engine and waited there in the dark for uh, a good few minutes uh, with crickets chirping, with the sounds of the night uh, surrounding us. And the, <laughs> I don't think you know true blackness until you're out in a place like that. Uh, really, really impenetrable uh, dark. But of course, this lioness was part of a pride that was hunting. And the way that lions hunt is they form like a crescent shape. Uh, so lionesses all along uh, this curved front, this line, uh, to approach this impala herd. And their idea is to be able to direct it, to corral it. Uh, so that's what they were doing. And soon they arrived. Uh, they uh, caused this impala herd to panic, to run. As you'd hear that sound of hooves on the packed earth. And then there was the, the sound of this impala ram's uh, neck being snapped, being broken, because there's always one line waiting out over here behind the herd, uh, which is going to do that ambush. And it happened uh, to have taken place within about five meters of the car. Uh, so I was there dangling my feet over, waiting, listening in the dark, uh, hearing all of these incredible sounds of the line hunt taking place almost within reach. And uh, so that was quite an experience. Uh, it definitely brought home the power of nature and just the spontaneity of it. 
Uh, this was something none of the guys had experienced in any of their careers. Truly, truly incredible, but really, yeah, mind-blowing experience uh, for me. And one of those things you can't capture on camera. Uh, so one of those things which can only be told as the story um, on and on in these audio formats. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's amazing. That is such a privilege to be able to have an experience like that. It is. It can be vicious, but it can be beautiful in that power at the same time. Thank you yeah. for sharing that story. <laughs> and the lion cubs came up, of course, to feed on this kill. So you get to yeah. see the whole circle of life taking place. The whole life, right? That's it. It continues to go. And that's the whole point. And I think we're so afraid of change here as humans. And we hold on to what no longer serves because we don't want to let it go. But then I'm, I'm always reminded at a big snowstorm or a big storm here in the forest, you walk through and the old trees are knocked down to make room for the new. And that's just the circle mm-hmm. of life and it continues to go. So I think as humans, we can learn a lot from that and learn to let go a little bit and have a little bit of courage to and trust and faith in in the system that is our natural world that was created to be with this deep intelligence. I mean, there is an intelligence that keeps things going that is beyond our understanding, right? And so just being able to have faith in that, I think a little bit is is the awesomeness of the experience and the journey that you talk about. So thank you, Elliot. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and your knowledge and encourage everyone to check out Elliot and his work and the Human Nature Project and this new book he's put out. I mean, I'm excited to read it. I can't wait to get it because it sounds just amazing. And just these beautiful stories that you've had the ability to experience in your life, I I think is just a gift to everybody. So thank you again. And thanks for sharing your stories and your time with us tonight. We look forward to hearing more from you on your journey. Thank you, Sonia. Bye.